In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our sermon series for these Lenten midweek services is going to be Praying the Penitential Psalms. Don't get the wrong idea that this is some sort of canned set of sermons that we've purchased somewhere. I assure you, it's not. Let me begin with an observation about prayer. I have yet to come across a single Christian. I have yet to come across a single writing wherein a Christian asserts that he or she is satisfied with their prayer life. It simply doesn't exist for one reason or another. And we can get into some of those reasons. But the fact that prayer is such a sensitive subject, such a weak spot for so many of us, is already indicated in the service of individual confession absolution. The general confession therein, which means it's true for all people, is that my worship and prayers have faltered. Now, there are a variety of reasons for this, depending upon your station and context in life. Sometimes it is the uncertainties of the daily schedule. Work requires you to come in at varying times throughout the week, and so praying at a regular time in the morning is difficult. If you have kids, you can multiply that, not by the number of kids, but exponentially. You simply don't know when the egg's going to be ever so runny, the pink flip-flop is going to go missing, or the pants you carefully laid out the night before are going to be found itchy. All of these things have a tendency of getting in the way of a routine of family prayer. But for some, it's not the routine that's the issue. Rather, it's the content. How much do I pray? Of what do my prayers consist? Many times in my life, in my zeal, I have said, that's it. I'm going all out. Old Testament reading, epistle reading, New Testament reading, Lutheran confessions, praying the Psalms, praying the Lord's Prayer, praying for my family, praying for the church, praying for the state. Are you seeing the problem? You can do that about once before you're exhausted and your flesh no longer wants to do it so much. So too, on the other end of the spectrum, is a tendency, and especially we see this where there's a desire to, sp to pray spontaneously, ex corde, from the heart, because that's better than those rote prayers. But only a few weeks in do we realize we've traded in those rote prayers for our own version of a rote prayer, wherein the language becomes every bit as ossified and formulaic. And, to make it worse, it becomes truncated, becomes anemic and weak to the point of just a very quick laundry list that usually we don't even take the time to spell out in our inner monologue or with our words, just very rapidly in our head, and this, and this, and this, amen. If it's not the content, and it is the case for many who dedicate themselves to lives of prayer, if it's not the content, it's that the heart is far from the content. Yet another wrinkle, one can pray any number of psalms throughout the day. At times in the church, the entire psalmody was prayed over the course of a week. And other times during the church, the entire psalmody was prayed over the course of a day. Your mouth can be running through the psalms, but your heart far from them. 
Still others experience the obstacle to prayer that they really just don't understand the value of it. After all, doesn't God already know what I'm going to say before I say it? And maybe even speaking from a place of pain, I've prayed before, and he did not hear. I'll pray in church, but that's enough. Leave the rest to the professionals. And so it goes. A moment of truth even for us as pastors. We are required in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, to fill out a set, a self-evaluation tool, wherein we answer any number of questions. And churches can pull up that self-evaluation tool and find out something about you in in case they want to uh, call you to serve their congregation as a pastor. You're going to see in just a moment why it is that I've received so few calls. (laughs) Why I've remained... (laughs) at faith, my first call this entire time. There's a question directly about one's spiritual life, one's spiritual disciplines, prayer life, devotional life, etc. Describe this, which I always find rather shocking, that they think such a thing exists. Well, not period, but that they think such a thing exists in a way that it would just be static. Oh, this is how it has been since 2000 and whatever. Hardly. What would I say if I were honest? In the best of times, how would I describe my prayer and devotional life? Weak. In the worst of times, how would I describe my prayer and devotional life? Desperate. (laughs) And somewhere between those two at almost all points. But I'm in good company, as I mentioned. There's not a single saint in the history of the church who has said, I've got it all figured out. This is how you do it. Even tracing all the way back to the disciples themselves, they struggled with prayer, so much so that, and it must have been with some mild embarrassment, they even asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus said, well, it's really easy. Just open your mouth and say whatever is there. No. He said, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and so forth. He gives us the content. The most shocking thing about that prayer, perhaps to us as sinners, is that those first three petitions, once you get past the introduction, our Father who art in heaven, those first three petitions, hallowed be Thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done is immediately a little off-putting because why? It's not all about me. Interesting. The very first three petitions of the prayer our Lord teaches center our focus, at least ostensibly, on God. He's the center, not me. And as I take my rightful place, not at the center, in my smallness, something strange happens. All of a sudden, my prayers, which seem so, or my my problems, which seem so large to me because I thought that I was the center of the universe, these problems are cosmic in scope. No, as soon as I see that God's at the center of the universe and I'm small, something happens to my problems. I see that they become small too. I see my own temporariness. And so also then my problems take on that temporary quality. Immediately I'm reoriented to God who is good. His name 
that is holy and for the salvation of all, and so forth. All those things that our Lord would have us focus on. As one theologian puts it, if we want to pray aright, perhaps it's quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own hearts. And the Lord's Prayer works in exactly this way. So too, the Psalms. Maybe even more explicitly in the Psalms, because there are things in the Psalms that we would never dream of praying. Words we would never dream of saying. Petitions we would never dream of asking. Because it all seems so unspiritual, impious, even wrong. Yet, lo and behold, there the Psalms are given to us by none other than the Holy Spirit himself. And one of the wonderful things about the Psalms is that whether we're looking at the best of the Eastern Orthodox theologians or the best of the Evangelical theologians, the best of the Roman Catholic theologians or the best of the Lutheran theologians, one thing we're all agreed on is this. The Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus. And the Psalms are set before us that we might pray them in Jesus, through Jesus, and with Jesus. And that really, in truth, all of our prayers, you know, if you were to think of this as a pinnacle, it's like the Our Father is the summary of it all. And then if you want to get more detailed, it's the psalmody. And then all our prayers fit underneath that and are just expressions and extensions of that. We pray thus through, or in Jesus, baptized into Jesus, clothed with Jesus. And in this, then, we can be certain that our Father in heaven will not count our sins against us or deny our prayer because of them. So this praying in Jesus and conforming our prayers to him as disciples learning from the Master, the first and most wonderful part of that is that God, when he sees us, doesn't see our sins. He sees Jesus, and he delights to hear from us like a father sitting at the dining room table with little children crowding and clamoring all around him first, things in the mo- first thing in the morning, and all they want to do is fill his ears with their words because that's simply how they show their love. God the Father delights in hearing our prayers, and this perhaps is the greatest motivation at all, of all. Yeah, he already knows what we're going to pray before we pray it, But he so loved us in Christ Jesus that we now love him. We see his fatherly heart, his compassion, his mercy, his never-ending forgiveness. And thus, we can't help but love him who first loved us. And if we love him, we love to delight him. This is why God commands us to pray. He delights in hearing from us. We pray all our prayers in Jesus, but also through Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me, but that doesn't have only to do with salvation. That has to do with all things, prayer foremost among them. All our prayers are prayed through our great high priest who is compassionate and merciful, who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin and thus can sympathize with our weaknesses. Not only in Christ and through Christ, but with Christ. And this is where we'll pivot into our text. But there is a sense in which as we go about our prayer life, and the Psalms in particular, this rings true, we are praying 
with Jesus. No doubt you've run across those psalms that boast, I am righteous, I am sinless, and you've thought, how could I ever pray this? Because you're praying it with Jesus. It's his sinlessness and his righteousness that's been shared with you. And what about those psalms, though, that on the other hand lament our sinfulness and our wretchedness? Well, Christ is with us in that too. In the same way that he gives us his righteousness, he takes from us our sins. It's as if he is praying himself as a sinner, though he is without sin. He commits no personal sin. Yet he who knew no sin was made sin for us, and so we see him join us in our sinful condition and pray with us. We're going to see this, for example, in Psalm 6, which is the penitential psalm for this evening. There are seven of them, by the way. We're only going to have opportunity to preach on five, but we'll end up praying all of them over the course of the weeks via the liturgy. Now, as we turn our attention to Psalm 6, to oversimplify, there are two parts here. The first part is verses 1 through 7, and we'll just simply walk through those together. And the second part is verses 8 through 10. This psalm begins with a delightful scandal in interpretation. You'll see what I mean. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What is the scandal? Well, there are two different ways of interpreting this. One side interprets it this way. Look, he is praying, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What's at question here? What's at stake here isn't damnation, but rather rebuke and discipline. I recognize that I'm deserving of rebuke and discipline. Just Make it gentle, please. (laughs) What does the other side say? Well, binding itself a little more closely to the language, the language of anger is this really visceral language of like the nostril snorting. The language of wrath here is rage. And what this side wants to take here is the idea that your sins are damnable and God has every reason to be rageful towards you, filled with vengeance towards you. Which side prevails? Well, here's why I say it's a delightful controversy. Songs, psalms, and prayers are intentionally ambiguous. How do you read it? That's how you pray it. And it might be different today than it is next week, and that's fine. Psalms and songs are sometimes intentionally ambiguous. That's why we like it. One of my favorite songs growing up went like this. Carry a laser down the road that I must travel. Shocking to learn, maybe a decade and a half later, that the lyrics are actually, carry a laser down this road that I must travel. I don't know why the former appealed to me more when I was a young boy, but it did. This ambiguity is wonderful because it allows us the freedom to pray as we ought, as we need. Now, as we turn to the rest, I want to just assert one organizing principle that's here. I'm going to title this homily, in fact, Sick with Sin, 
There's one thing I'd like you to focus on, and that's how the psalmist describes his bad conscience, his sin, and his standing under the discipline or wrath of God, and what that does to the body. As we move on, we see in verse 2, no real part of this in the, um, in the first clause, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Now hinted at that languishing is weak or feeble, but then heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Have you ever been troubled so much with your sin or the sins of others or the state of the world that you can feel it all the way in your bones? My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? We're reminded here that this too is the prayer of the martyrs under the altar in heaven. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And that's the technical term, kased, which ultimately is the gospel. It's the promise of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. When you look up at the cross, that's what you're seeing. Kased, steadfast love, the promise that God will save you no matter what in Christ Jesus. You need only believe. He continues, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And we get hung up with this because we're thinking in terms of cosmology and we're thinking in terms of space and realms and that's not the way the psalmist is thinking. As one commentator put it, death is sin rendered visible. Do not leave me in my sins, O Lord. Do not give me over to my sins such that I become entirely spiritually dead. Then I cannot praise you. Then I will be as a man, I will be walking Sheol. I will be hell on earth. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? He continues, I am weary with my moaning. Have you ever been sick and tired of being sick and tired? (laughs) I am weary with my weariness. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Notice again the eyes. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away. A better way to think of this would be my eye decays. And the parallel phrase, it grows weak, better would be, it grows old because of all my foes. What's being pictured here is that not only is sin experienced as bodily sickness, but now it's experienced as bodily decay, the kind of decay we experience as we age. The eye decays and grows old because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. We turn to the second part now. Notice the turn. He's done with his lament, and now he asserts. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, all who are committed to evil, all who are opposed to God. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Isn't that an amazing phrase? That when you're standing in the shower and the tears are running down your eyes, when you're at night hoping your spouse is asleep and your tears are running down your cheek and onto the pillow and you sniffle and snort and make those awkward noises we all make, God hears that. 
and he cares. God who made the cosmos cares. He has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. My enemies have become God's enemies because he is for me. And if he is for me, none can be against me. And as we reflect on these themes, we again reflect chiefly on our Lord Jesus as he prays these with us. Consider this quotation from the book of Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You can re-pray this entire prayer as if it were being spoken from the Lord Jesus on the cross. And now we see the truth of our lives. Our lives are cruciform. His suffering is our suffering, and our suffering is his suffering. We are one in Jesus. We are forgiven in Jesus. We are loved by the Father in Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.